Good morning, friends. It's my great joy to be able to bring you God's Word this morning. Uh, welcome. Uh, if you're new or visiting or if you're joining online, uh, it's great that you're able to uh, join us. I want to start this morning uh, with this question. What do your actions reveal about who you are? I can always tell when my two-year-old son, Lucas, needs a nappy change. It's pretty obvious by the smell and occasionally, uh, sadly, by the leak. Uh, although Lucas thinks that he needs more playtime, uh, what I think he really needs as his father is a diaper change. And being the only man who changes his nappy, I would think that my actions reveal to Lucas that I'm someone special, that I'm his father. But I don't think he gets it. Uh, I've been changing his nappies for two years now, and he still refuses to call me Papa. Uh, you know, he calls me Mama just to tease me. Uh, the, only, the only way I can get him to call me Papa is to bribe him with some ice cream. Very cheeky, that one. What do your actions reveal about who you are? This is the question that Jesus answers of himself in our passage today in Mark chapter 6. We've seen all through the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is a very generous person. He sees the needs of those around him and he provides for them. He heals the sick, he casts out the demons, he even raises someone from the dead. But his actions in our passage today reveal something much more profound about who he is. As we'll see, the disciples were oblivious, even though they were with Jesus every single day. They followed him, they listened to his teachings, they watched him, and they still missed it. They didn't see what Jesus' actions was revealing about himself. Now, we may be super familiar with the Sunday school stories of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and walking on water and healing the sick. But are we at risk too? Have we become oblivious to what Jesus is revealing about himself here? Well, please have your Bibles open in front of you so that we can carefully look at how Jesus gives his disciples and to us a glimpse, a sneak peek of who he is into his remarkable divinity. We're going to see how Jesus reveals himself as divine in three parts. The divine shepherd who feeds the flock, the divine saviour who assures the anxious, and the divine healer who heals the hurt. Verse 31 starts with Jesus recognising the physical toll that the journey has had on his disciples. It's been a busy time of ministry in the town surrounding the Sea of Galilee. On the screen, this is the region that events are going to be taking place in our passage today. And we can see that Jesus tells them to come with me by yourselves to a quiet place to get some rest. Jesus knows that they need some rest, and he cares for them by giving them that break. And as they get on that boat to go somewhere quiet, the crowds see them leaving. Such is the popularity of Jesus that the crowds run ahead of the boat to where they anticipate they were going to land. And even those from the surrounding towns hear that Jesus is on the way, and they run out and join the crowds. We see in verse 34 that when Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. We see that Jesus had compassion on the crowds. The word used for compassion has this idea of the churning of the stomach. It's that sickening and gut-wrenching feeling that you have deep down inside when you're feeling extremely sad for someone. Jesus has a deep sense of love and care for the people 
because he saw that the crowd were like sheep without a shepherd. In the Old Testament, the people of God were metaphorically described as of sheep, and the leaders of the people as their shepherds. So why did Jesus think that they didn't have a shepherd? Didn't Israel already have some leaders, some shepherds who led them? Well, King Herod could be considered a, a, political, sheep, a political shepherd of Israel. His role was to govern the nation. But instead of looking after the people that were under his care, he was oppressive and taxed the people heavily for personal gain. And we saw last week that he was more interested in looking after his own reputation than the people. And he gave in to peer pressure by having John the Baptist beheaded. In other parts of Mark, we're also reminded of another one of Israel's leaders, the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders, the religious shepherds, who were supposed to help God's people worship him. But instead, they burdened the people with extra requirements, extra regulations that made it almost impossible to live up to God's standards. Both of these leaders were miserable shepherds for God's flock. So what makes a good shepherd? Well, a good shepherd is someone who leads and guides the sheep away from danger and into safety. A good shepherd would lead the flock to greener pastures to eat and streams of fresh water to drink. And he might even lay down his life to protect them from wild animals. So a shepherd, a shepherd of God's people should be a leader who will care for them and generously provide for their needs. In our Old Testament reading from Ezekiel 34, we saw that God appointed leaders for Israel, but they had failed to lead his flock in the right way. They only cared for themselves. And we see that instead, something new was about to happen. Have a look with me in verses 11 and 12, uh, where God himself said he would be Israel's shepherd. For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they are scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. In Mark 6, Jesus is about to reveal to the crowd of Israelites that he is their true and compassionate shepherd. He knows what they really need, and what they really need is spiritual nourishment. In verse 34, he began teaching them many things, or literally, he began teaching them at length. Jesus graciously gives his time and energy to teach the people, despite the long day that he's already had. Jesus provides a generous portion of spiritual food. And as we'll see, this, generous, this generosity is extended into an abundant portion of physical food too. Well, it's now getting late in the day, verse 35, and Jesus' disciples are getting a bit nervous because there's nothing. The people will get hungry. And if they don't get to the surrounding villages in time, the shops will close and they'll starve. The disciples tell Jesus that he needs to send the crowd away and let them go buy some dinner. Instead, Jesus responds, you give them something to eat. Can you imagine the look on the disciples' face? Verse 44 tells us that there are 5,000 men, and this doesn't include women and children, so there could have been thousands more. How could the disciples possibly feed 5,000 10,000, maybe even 15,000 hungry people. At my wedding six years ago, 
Uh, we catered morning tea for around 250 people. Uh, it cost us a small fortune to be able to feed that many mouths, and a lot of logistics to figure out how to get people through the lines to pick up the food and to keep moving. Now, I don't want to bear the cost and logistical nightmare of having to cater for 5,000 people. 250 was enough for me. The disciples felt the same way, uh, and they exclaimed, That's, that would take more than half a year's wages. You can hear the reluctance in their voice. It would be the price of a, a brand new car or a house deposit or a luxury cruise around the world. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? It would be physically impossible for any human to provide that much food, let alone then and there. Despite their hopelessness, the disciples managed to find five loaves of bread and two fish, perhaps to feed enough for three people, but not 5,000. The disciples had seen Jesus do many remarkable things, but it didn't cross their mind that Jesus could also feed thousands upon thousands of people. The narrative turns from the disciples' inability to provide to Jesus' power to multiply even the smallest of resources into an abundant and overflowing banquet. What Jesus is about to do will reveal his divinity, to reveal to the disciples that he is in very nature God. And his acts are full full of Old Testament allusions which point to God's promise about himself coming and to be the shepherd of his people. In verse 39, Jesus directs the, people, uh, the disciples to organize the crowds to sit into small groups. Within a span of three verses, Mark highlights the wilderness aspect of where they are. In verses 32 and 35, they're in a desolate place, a, re- a remote place, a solitary place, a place where there's nothing but arid desert. Yet, in verse 39, where are the people sitting? On green grass. Jesus had led the crowd to a place where there was greener pastures. It sounds an awful lot like Psalm 23, doesn't it? The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. After the people sit down, Jesus takes the bread and fish looks up to heaven, gives thanks, and then breaks the bread and the fish. It then gives it to the disciples to distribute to the people. And we see in verse 42 that they all ate and were satisfied. Their stomachs had been filled with food, maybe even to the point of a food coma. The idea of full stomachs uh, reminds us of the accounts in Exodus 16, where God continually provides for Israel in the wilderness day after day. Have a look with me, verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Just as the Israelites of old ate bread and were full, the Israelites with Jesus also ate bread and were full. They were satisfied. By providing abundantly, Jesus is making the link between the provision that God provided and the provision that Jesus now provides. The miracle is supposed to help the disciples in particular to connect the person of Jesus to God himself as they witness these things up close. 
Jesus' abundant generosity has resulted in so much food that in verse 43, the disciples go and they pick up all the scraps. And we see that there's 12 basketfuls of broken fish and bread. Now, you may think that it was a coincidence that there were 12 basketfuls, 12 disciples, a basket each. There you go, 12 basketfuls. But it actually represents the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a symbol showing that Jesus is able to feed and satisfy all of Israel, all of God's chosen people. A similar thing happens in chapter 8 in the account of the feeding of the 4,000, where seven basketfuls are picked up. Again, 12 disciples, but only seven. Uh, This number seven is also symbolic, but I'm not going to tell you what it means. You're going to have to come back in a couple weeks. In this account, Jesus has made some pretty strong allusions to his divinity. Because Jesus is divine, he knows what his disciples and the crowd really need, and he provides generously for those needs. Did the disciples understand that Jesus' actions was revealing that he was divine? Can they see that Jesus is the compassionate shepherd who knows what his people really needs and provides abundantly? Would seeing such a thing transform their faith in him? As 21st century Christians, we probably don't know our Old Testament as well as the first century Jews. If we were the disciples, if we were in their shoes, we might be forgiven for not being able to pick up on all the Old Testament allusions. But that doesn't excuse us for not studying the Old Testament more and finding the riches of God's truth in it. By spending more time in the Old Testament, we gain a much deeper appreciation of Jesus' divinity. So why not make an effort this year to read through some of the Old Testament for yourself and see how it points to the person and divinity of Jesus? Well, after organizing the crowds into smaller groups, uh, then distributing the bread and fish, and then collecting all the leftovers, you can appreciate that it's been a pretty long day, that it's now quite late at night. So Jesus, in verse 45, immediately makes his disciples get on a boat and to go ahead of him to Bethsaida, where, while he dismisses the crowd, he wants to give them that break that was interrupted earlier that day. And after leaving them, he then goes up to a mountainside to pray. It was now around the early hours of the morning, and the boat is in the middle of the lake, far away from the shoreline. A few weeks ago, David explained to us how it is that winds are whipped up in the area due to the mountains around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, And we can see how the topography of the land contributes to that. Here in chapter 6, again, another uh, windstorm is uh, passing through. The winds have picked up and the the boat is now rocking side to side. Uh, This time, the wind is blowing in a different direction to where the disciples were supposed to head to. And they're straining at their oars, struggling to get the boat to move in the direction that they want. It's like being at the beach and being uh, being caught in a rip. You can try and try to swim back to shore, but the currents will just keep pulling you out further and further into the ocean. And you need a lifeguard to be able to see that you need help and to come out there with a boat to rescue you. Something is about to happen that will further reveal Jesus' divinity. Like a lifeguard at the beach, Jesus saw that they needed help in the windstorm. And he provides it by going down the mountain and coming to them. But he brings help in a way that is far more remarkable 
than what they can realize. And again, we're going to see a lot of Old Testament allusions. We see Jesus, uh, Jesus sees the disciples struggling in verse 48. He supernaturally sees from far away up in the mountain, in the dark, in the storm, that they're struggling. He then walks on the lake. He doesn't swim. He doesn't jump on a jet ski. He walks, step by step, treading on water. In the Old Testament, God is the only one who's described as being able to walk on water. Uh, here's one example in Job 9.8, where, uh, where Job is describing God. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Jesus here is doing what only God can do, walk on water. We read that Jesus is about to pass by them in verse 48. He intended to walk past them, not because he didn't care about them, but again, because it's an illusion to the Old Testament, to what God does for Moses in Exodus 33, 19 to 22. Uh, and the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. The disciples didn't recognize Jesus when he passed by on the water, and they thought it was a ghost. But when they see his face, they recognize that it was Jesus, and they cry out with terror. Their fears and their anxieties are compounded by the sight of a man doing what only God can do, walking on water in total control. It was one thing for Jesus to calm the storm back in chapter 4. It was another thing to walk on water. To witness Jesus treading on water in the midst of this windstorm was more terrifying than seeing a ghost. And Jesus speaks words of assurance. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. He confirms to them that he is really Jesus. He's not a ghost. But Jesus' self-revelation alludes to his divinity. Look carefully at what he says. It is I, and don't be afraid. The words, it is I, is the same words that God uses to describe himself when he reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush. In Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am in Old Testament Hebrew, the same as I am in New Testament Greek. The same expression. Not only that, but don't be afraid, do not fear, is the phrase God uses when he's about to appear before someone. Now, one such example, Isaiah 41.13. For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. As an aside, uh, in the parallel account in Matthew 14, Jesus invites Peter to join him outside the boat on the water. And as Peter comes towards Jesus, he looks around and becomes afraid and begins to sink. 
He cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus does exactly as Isaiah 41 says that God would do. He takes hold of Peter's hand and helps him. Coming back to Mark 6, we see in verse 51 that after speaking these words of assurance, Jesus climbs into the boat and the wind immediately dies down. Yet again, another sign of Jesus' power over nature. They make it safe and sound to the other side of the lake in Gennesaret. Jesus' actions of leading them to safety on the shores is reminiscent of God leading his people through the Red Sea in the Exodus. Yet again, another Old Testament illusion. Jesus knows what his disciples really need, and he provides generously for those needs. Jesus is the divine saviour who assures them that he's with them, and he powerfully rescues them from their fears and anxieties. They were completely amazed at what they just saw and what they experienced. In fact, completely amazed is probably an understatement. Uh, They were astounded, gobsmacked, flabbergasted. It was nothing like what they had seen before, or even expected that Jesus was able to do. Again, Jesus exceeded all expectations of who they thought he was. Back in 441, Jesus had calmed the storm with the power of his voice, and the disciples were terrified, and they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Here in chapter 6, Jesus gives a clear answer to that question in another storm. It is I. I am God in the flesh. But even after all of these Old Testament illusions about his divinity, their hearts were hardened. They still didn't understand what Jesus was revealing about himself. They couldn't comprehend that Jesus was showing his divinity in the feeding of the 5,000. And again, when Jesus is walking in water, they just didn't seem to pick it up. Despite being insiders, their faith had not progressed. They didn't trust that Jesus was able to do anything remarkable enough to provide for their needs in the time of trouble. They still couldn't grasp that Jesus was God in the flesh. Perhaps this might be you today. Even though you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, you may have forgotten just how remarkable Jesus is, and you start feeling lukewarm in your faith. Perhaps you've started to lose faith that Jesus knows what you truly need and that he can abundantly provide it abundantly provide for you. Perhaps you've started hardening your heart because you look around you and you question your faith, you question other Christians, the church, and perhaps you realize that you're struggling to believe in Jesus anymore. The danger of having a hardened heart is that we don't remember who Jesus really is and what he's done for us. And we start doubting that he can provide for our deepest needs. We lose sight of just how big and powerful he is, and we reduce him to just another man who can't do anything remarkable for our faith. We might become self-reliant and try to provide for our own needs, and we try to get ourselves back up without recognizing that only Jesus can provide for our deepest spiritual, emotional, psychological, and physical needs. If this is you, And I encourage you to go back to the Gospels, as we've been doing at church. 
and just sitting in the scriptures. Read them again and rediscover the love that you once had for your divine saviour who assures you of your salvation and will powerfully rescue you from your anxieties and the storms that threaten to drown your faith. Let's quickly look at the final part of our passage today. In verses 53 to 56, we see the crowds once again following Jesus. And he continues to allow people to come to him. Those who are hurting and seeking healing, they are able to come right up to him. And he heals them. Word must have gotten out about the woman back in chapter 4 who had been bleeding for a long time. Uh, And just by touching the edge of his cloak in faith, she was healed. People here beg Jesus to just be able to just touch the edge of his cloak. And sure enough, he allows them to. And he allows them to be healed. Jesus is the divine healer who knows that people are hurting and in need of healing. And rather than limiting his healing to a few selected people, he generously heals all those who come to him. And it even allows people to touch the edge of his cloak for healing. All those who are hurting and seeking healing received their healing. Again, Jesus shows that he is the shepherd who is compassionate to his flock and gives healing to them in abundance. Through these Old Testament allusions, we see in these three accounts that Jesus is revealing who he really is to his disciples. He's more than a good teacher, a miracle worker, or even a superhero. He's more than a man. He is the divine God-man. Jesus reveals to his disciples his divine nature through his compassionate actions and comforting words. But as those on this side of the cross, we don't need to rely on the Old Testament allusions like the disciples needed to in order to confirm his divinity. Jesus has shown us that he is the promised shepherd by laying down his life on the cross so that those who believe in him and follow him will receive forgiveness. His resurrection from the dead and ascension to heaven means that he will lead us to greener pastures. He generously gives us his Holy Spirit who gives us new life now as we wait for his return. As the divine God-man, fully human and fully God, Jesus knows what we really need and his actions show us who he really is. Jesus is human in every single way, but without sin. And that means he's able to understand our needs as humans. By taking on flesh, he truly understands what we go through in life and what it is that we really need deep down. And he's able to empathize with us. And because he is fully God in every way, he is also able to powerfully and abundantly provide for our needs. He provides generously because he is powerful and compassionate. A few weeks ago, uh, someone close uh, to my wife and I passed away, and it's been a difficult time of grieving. Uh, Our family and friends have been praying for us and with us, um, and they've offered practical help, um, like cooking a meal, having a chat, and just messaging us. And we're thankful for their love and support at this time. But as great as they've been in supporting us, they don't truly understand the 
the depth of our despair and the grief that we're experiencing. And as much as they try to know our needs and they try to generously provide for our needs, they don't see the deep anguish that is inside our hearts. And they can't really give what we need. They can't console us. They can't console our hearts. As Yenli and I reflected on this passage over the past week, we've come to see that Jesus really truly does understand our pain and our grief. Because he's fully human, he understands our grief very personally because he himself experienced grief. And because he is fully God, fully divine, he can see into the depths of our pain so much more than anyone else can. And we've experienced his care for us on a very personal level. Our good shepherd has given us a deep sense of comfort in our time of loss. And he's taught us to trust him in the midst of our pain. He's richly blessed us with consolation and hope that no one else can offer or even give. And we are thankful that he cares for us personally. Though our faith was severely tested, Jesus held on to us like a good shepherd, and we continue to trust him through the storms of life. Perhaps you're in a similar situation. Perhaps you're feeling sad, discouraged, let down, sorrow, betrayed, lonely, let down by others. Perhaps you're feeling quite low in life right now, and no one else understands what you're going through. We've seen in Mark 6 that Jesus is the divine God-man, full of compassionate actions and comforting words. Jesus has shown that he compassionately provides for the needs of his followers, spiritual and physical, physical sustenance for the crowds, assurance and salvation from anxiety from, for his disciples, and healing and comfort for the hurt who come to him. In his divinity, he understands what we really need. Sorry, in his humanity, he understands what really, we really need. In his divinity, he has the power to provide for those needs abundantly. In our lowest moments, Jesus is our compassionate shepherd who provides abundantly for what his flock needs. Jesus is the divine God-man who loves the lowly. Will you come to Jesus and trust him to provide for your deepest needs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is the divine God-man who loves the lowly because he truly understands what we go through, but he also is powerful and able to provide for our deepest needs. We pray that you may help us to come to him in humility and to trust that he's able to guide us and lead us to greener pastures. We pray that the truth of what we've heard today may shape us in a way in which we see Jesus, that he is truly remarkable. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.